27, again, looking at the details of the cross. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clophus, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother, and from that hour that disciple took her to his own home. So looking at Mount Calvary so far, so far we've been looking again in very, very close details here, what's been going on. And we've seen these three crosses upon that mountain. And we saw this picture of the Lord's atoning death. There was two thieves upon each cross, one on the Lord's right, one on the Lord's left. One of these men Well, he mocked the Lord, and he was more concerned about his personal situation, or maybe I should say his physical situation that day, and it took precedence over his spiritual condition. The other man was more concerned with his spiritual condition, and he looked to the Lord, and the Lord answered his call. And so again, we've got this rich picture of the Lord's atoning death. And again, we have that picture of those crosses upon that hill, and and there's just something about that. Well, we're going to see that that illustration is still playing through in a little bit. Last week, we saw the sign that Pilate posted upon the Lord's cross, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, and he posted it in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. And we see that this is to speak to all of humanity and all of man's disciplines that the Lord, the Lord is truly Lord over all. And then last week, as far as the Lord's garments, we saw the nakedness of the Lord or the shame as he's taking our shame upon him to deal with our shame. And we saw where this concept entered in quite early in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, it says, Then the eyes of both of them, of Adam and Eve, were opened, and they knew that they were naked and sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And again, this is when sin had entered in, and they realized that their shame is exposed. I, I really personally believe that that fruit that they ate off of that tree was a fig tree that just kind of enriches at least the picture for me because their sin now is upon them and the idea is their sin is upon them and it's very visible because not only did they do that they also hid in the bushes later on God would give them a proper covering in Genesis chapter 3 verse 21 also for Adam and his wife the Lord made tunics of skin and clothed them those tunics of skin came from a lamb And again, it's a picture of the Lamb of God who would in the future take away the sins of the world. So now, in the immediate area of this cross, we have a couple of groups of people. There are the soldiers, and they're pretty much indifferent to what is going on. They're just going through the routine of here's another crucifixion, although we know it's anything but just another crucifixion. There's the crowd who is mocking the Lord Jesus Christ. Probably just as that one thief upon the cross, they were disappointed because he wasn't going to take care of their physical needs, or at least their perceived physical needs. They truly thought that this was going to be the one who was going to expel Rome. And since he wasn't going to accomplish that, well, it's why they were mocking him. The thieves upon the cross... We see them on either side of the Lord, again, one mocking and one receiving. And then we have a group of four women, a group of four women that we'll see tonight tell four different stories. 
Again, verse 25. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clophas and Mary Magdalene. We'll look at Mary last, Mary the mother of the Lord. But first what we have is her sister, Salome. This would be Jesus' aunt. Salome is the mother of James and John, and she is the wife of Zebedee. She is a mother, and I wonder what is going through her head. The mother, mother of children and seeing what's happening to her sister's child, it's got to be gripping her heart. And what I mean as a father, I can have compassion upon others, but here something deeper is going on. Something deeper as something is striking her very, very harshly as she's seeing the magnitude of, of a past lesson that was given by the Lord. So again, we see something happening to, to, to even her nephew, but she's got to be wondering, what about my children? Well, we know, looking back, she couldn't look forward, but James was going to be the first apostle who was martyred for his faith. He was beheaded for his witness. John, we know, would live all the way through and would not be executed, but would die a natural death. But Salome is looking at the broken Lord on the cross, and her heart is moved, but There has to be nagging thoughts that are going through her head and hitting her directly in her heart. Turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 20 and and, and just keep this mindset before you as we read over there of there Salome, she's looking up at the crucified Lord. Now think of the crucified Lord that she's looking up. He's nailed to the cross and just how gruesome that is. Also, he's been scourged. And so just, just think of all of that violence and all of that ugliness. And then these words come back to her mind. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 20, it says, Then the mother of Zebedee's son came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, grant that these two sons of mine, this would be James and and John, may sit, one on your right hand and the other on the left, in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said to him, we are able. So he said to them, You will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those to whom it is prepared by my Father. And I would imagine that Salome, as she's sitting there, she would be reminded of that conversation. She's looking at the crucified Lord, and she's seeing him scourged and destroyed seemingly right before her eyes. And all she's got to do is look to his right and look to his left and there's those two thieves that are there and and she's got to be thinking and that's the position that I I I asked for for my for my sons now now she was thinking a a worldly kingdom here and and Jesus was going to be seated upon the throne as as most Jews did again not so much his death but just again to restore Israel and she was wanting that position but she had no clue really what she was asking for and, and, and there is those two thieves upon the cross being executed right before her eyes. And this has really got to be hitting her heart. Because Jesus said, they're going to be baptized with the same baptism with which I am going to be baptized with. Now don't think water baptism. It's the Greek word baptismo, which means total immersion. 
And the idea is is that Jesus is all in. And these guys are going to be all in as well. We don't hear anything more about Salome. I mean, after the Gospels, I don't know if she was even still alive when James was killed. But if she was, then again, that would be another reminder of what the Lord said to her. And then her son, yes, he did live a full life, but he was definitely prosecuted for his beliefs in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he suffered a lot. And he did give of his life for Jesus Christ. And, well, it's all worth it. There's no doubt. But as she sees the Lord being crucified, it touches her heart as she sees the other crosses of one on his left and one on his right. And the realization of what Jesus had previously said truly hit home, the magnitude of it. And so I have to imagine when I pray for my kids or I pray for my grandkids that they would follow Jesus, that they would walk strongly with him to understand the baptism that they're going to be baptized with. Now, if God's for us, who can be against us? There's no doubt about that. And I want them walking strongly with the Lord, but not just to pray that prayer, but to pray all the way down the line that God would strengthen them, that in the face of opposition, that they would continue to push forward, that they would not deny the Lord when threatened. Because again, we see how evil, well, look at it in our day. We see how contrary to our beliefs and the truth that the world is and even our own country. Wasn't like that 10 years ago. Wasn't like that 20, 30, 40 years ago. What's it going to be like 10 years from now? What's it going to be like 20 and, and 30 years from now? Are you praying for your kids? Are you praying for your grandkids? They are. They're not the future church. They're the present church right now, but they're the future leadership of the church. And just pray that they would be bold because the same baptism that we've all been baptized with, they will be baptized with as well. Then there's Mary, the wife of Clopas. The name Clopas and Alphaeus are Aramaic and Hebrew. Clopas is Aramaic, Alphaeus is Hebrew. They're renderings of the same name. This Mary is the wife of Alphaeus and the mother of James the Less. There were two Jameses. There was James, the brother of John, but there was another James. He was referred to as James the Less. Also, Matthew is referred to as the son of Alphaeus, the the apostle Matthew. So more than likely, they're brothers and this is their mother. She represents the men who were not there, the other 11. The, The other 11 who... Well, Mark chapter 14, verse 50 says, they all forsook him and fled. Now, why was it necessary that they all forsake him? And you could possibly say, well, it wasn't necessary, they just did it. I really believe it was necessary. Because we so easily can put people up on the cross with Christ. But when came time for Jesus Christ to die, he died alone. Because it's only, now keep in mind what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. He's on that cross, and he has taken the sins of the world upon himself. Now, what comes because of sin? Death comes because of sin. And so the picture and the focus is upon Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Nobody else could be there with him. I know there were the other two thieves, but the focus has to be upon the Lord. And as the focus is upon the Lord, Jesus took sin upon himself. Because he took sin upon him, he died. 
And again, somebody could say, big deal, that's been happening to mankind throughout all of the ages. But as his resurrection, it proved that he achieved victory over death. If he achieved victory over death by being raised from the dead, that means that he achieved victory over sin as well. And the reason that we will be resurrected is because we have received victory over death and then hence victory over sin because of what Christ has done. And so it's essential that when Jesus Christ died upon that cross, he died alone. What's man been trying to do? Man's been trying to climb up on the cross with Christ. The works of what Christ had done and the works of what we have done. Or we're trying to put somebody else upon the cross. We're trying to put these saints upon the cross. Or they're trying to put Mary upon the cross, co-redemptress. Trying to add to the cross, well, it's Jesus Christ and him alone. Jesus died as he is the only one who is able to take the sins of the world upon himself. Everybody else forsook him. They'll come back, we know that, but at this moment, Jesus died alone. Jesus died alone so that we would not place any other apostle upon the cross with him. Then we also see present here Mary Magdalene. In Mary Magdalene, we should see all of humanity She's the one from whom seven demons were cast out from. This woman was a sinner and she was left without hope until Jesus Christ entered her life. And I see in Mary Magdalene, I I see myself to a degree and just how lost I was, how blind I once was. And, and, And now you have this helpless sinner who's received the grace of God worshiping before this cross, understanding the magnitude again of what's going on here. And if the Son sets us free, truly we are free indeed. And then fourthly, we do have the mother of the Lord, Mary, of who it is said in Luke chapter 1, verse 42, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Blessed are you amongst women. Notice in that term, she's not being exalted above amongst all of the women, of which you are a woman as well, You're the one that God has chosen to bless, not to exonerate or anything else, but he has blessed her, and truly he did bless her as she is the mother of the Lord. You have to wonder how blessed, though, she feels at this time looking upon her eldest son upon that cross. She always knew in some form to some degree that one day that this day was going to happen. Turn over your Bibles now to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, Jesus has been born and they're going to make the offering in the temple until they come across this one man, Simeon. And this one man, Simeon, he prophesies over the Lord and over his mother. In Luke chapter 2, verse 34, Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, check this out, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign which will be spoken against, yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. He's talking to Mary there and the sword piercing her heart. Look at the typology that is there. The sword, the sword back then and even today, you have the sword itself, but you have that cross section on the sword as protection on your hand so that your hand doesn't slide up the sword and gets killed. And if you look at that sword, it's got the form of a cross to it. 
And I would imagine, even though we understand what is happening on that cross, I don't know to what degree exactly Mary understood. She did have the past prophecies that we have, specifically Isaiah and and Psalm 22 and so on and so forth. But nonetheless, it's just hitting home that this is what he was talking about. Can you imagine seeing your child tortured to death before your very eyes? This pain... This pain has been building throughout her life. This pain started very early. It started when there was no room at the inn, and she had to place her baby in a feeding trough. Can you imagine this great promise is delivered by angels? And and this young girl, probably as young as some say, is around 14. And here she is. I'm giving birth to the Messiah. And again, confirmed by angels, but here we are in, in, this, in this barn, basically, in this cave, more than likely, and, and, and just such humble beginnings. And then it continued when she heard, and it had to terrify her heart, that the leader of her country, the king, the king is seeking to kill her little boy. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine if you got the news that the authorities were after your child? And, and so where do you run? Where do you hide? Well, we know that God supernaturally protected him, but nonetheless, I can imagine if you hear that, the, especially as a baby, your child's life being threatened, that sword, that sword just twisted a little bit and it had to hurt. And now this sword is truly being realized in its totality as she is seated at the foot of the cross, again, looking up into the eyes of her son. But what I want to present to you and Mary is a great act of faith. Is a great act of faith. Again, keep in mind, don't know all of the details. They don't have the New Testament as we have. Now, I believe that she knew the gospel and she knew the truth. There's no doubt about that. But you have to understand the faith that she is exhibiting here. Now, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And I really believe that we see this in Mary to a greater degree than we see in most other people mentioned in the scriptures or even mentioned in in Hebrews chapter 11. It's being at the foot of the cross of your son and hearing all the insults, hearing all the insults from those people for whom he is dying for. It's seeing the results of their spitting and seeing the damage that has been done to, to her son's body all by those who have been placed there for. It's knowing that this is God's will, but probably having a hard time understanding the totality of it. Because even though at times we do know God's will, sometimes it can be very hard to digest. Sometimes it can be very hard to, 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 to receive. Things are happening that we don't understand, that we must receive by faith. Now, Mary did have the Old Testament, and we see in the scriptures that she seemed to understand it to a very great degree. One of the scriptures that she very possibly could have known, Isaiah 46, verses 10 through 11, speaking of God who declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, "'My counsel shall stand, and I will do all of my pleasure.'" 
calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it, and I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. So again, we look at these Old Testament prophecies, and we see how God was prophesying the judgment that he was going to bring upon Israel, and those things came to pass. Well, we saw in our study of Isaiah and Ezekiel that there's a long and a short to a lot of God's prophecies a lot of the prophecies to history as it was going on back then, but there was also a lot of end-time prophecies that were given. And so as history plays out, as these things were prophesied and they happened back then, we know with a great assurance the things that have been prophesied back then are still yet to happen, and we have a surety that they are going to come to pass. And so here's Mary as she's been given certain prophecies and understanding the truthfulness of God's word because what is prophecy? So many times prophecy has been reduced today to amongst certain parties to telling the future or maybe even guessing the future and calling that prophecy. Prophecy is just simply the revealed will through the word of God. Now, the word was given to the prophet back then. They didn't have the written word to the degree that we had, and the prophet would deliver the word of God. Matter of fact, we see in Acts, there's still quite a few prophets. For most churches and most cities, they would have a prophet because they did not have the written word of God. And so, God's word getting out. And we see the magnitude of what Mary's faith truly is, because Mary's faith is experiencing all these things and keeping quiet as her son is upon the cross, think about it. She could end it all anytime she wants. She could end the process of this crucifixion. I don't know if she would save his life after the scourging, but nonetheless, is all she has to say is, is that Joseph was the child's natural father. That's all she would have to say. Because keep in mind, she's the one who knows the truth. And, and if she would say that, that would discount... now that would discount who the Lord is, I mean, if it was a true statement. But just think if that was your kid upon the cross. Would you be able to, if you saw that there's a way, there's a way that I could stop all of that for him, would you, would you keep your mouth quiet? Would you not cry out? Well, I believe that Mary understands that this is the will of God, probably not understanding all of the details of it. Now, that would have been a lie. There's no doubt about it. But it would have ended the suffering. Because, see, Jesus is more valuable to the Jews alive as a fraud. If if he could have been proven a fraud, he's more valuable alive than dead because then he would become a martyr. And so, more than likely, she had the opportunity to end it all. But her faith was greater in God and in God's word, God's plan, and what God is coming, uh, causing to come to pass. You got that same faith? You don't understand what's going on. You don't understand why, why my child is, is suffering. I don't understand why these hard things are happening. Why is God allowing these things to happen? And, and here I am, I'm standing quietly by the cross, and I'm having this sword that is penetrating my heart. And I can just imagine the suffering that Mary's going through, not to the degree that the Lord, but nonetheless. But still she understands that the one thing that I understand is that this is the plan of God. And so she keeps quiet, but I really believe that her quiet speaks volumes, speaks volumes of her faith, 
It speaks volumes of what God is doing. Those hard times, those hard times when we have nothing to cling to but the promises of God. When things are happening that we truly do not understand and we see no way out, it's the Lord that we hold on to. I'm going to read Psalm 16. It's only 11 verses, but we see the psalmist, King David here. You see in the midst of hardship, we see how he was, well, we see the degree to which he was clinging to the Lord. Psalm 16, verse 1, Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. There's many places that we can put our trust, but there's only one that is going to be found faithful. Verse 2, O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Now when it says here, you have said to the Lord, the Lord is in all caps. That word Lord is in all caps. It's a tetragrammatron, Yahweh. And it says, you are my Lord. You are my Adonai, because that is capital L, but the rest is lowercase letters. The idea here is Yahweh is my Adonai. God is the Lord of my life. He's not telling God that. He's speaking these things out loud, and he's being reminded of these things himself. These hard things are coming, but the God who is, is my Lord. O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. For all the saints who are on earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer. He's not going to worship these false gods and how others do. Nor take up their names on my lips. O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen in me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. Notice how how he seems to be almost a despair at the beginning of the Psalms. So many of David's Psalms are like this. They start out with, this guy's in big trouble. This guy's going through some hard times. And you hear a little bit about his, his salvation, I'm sorry, his situation. But then he starts looking at God and he starts examining the goodness of God. Examining the power of God and understanding who God is, the attributes of God. And it seems in the middle of a lot of his Psalms, there's this kind of changing over. As he understands who God is and what God is able to do, you see despair being turned into trust. Again, in verse 6, up at verse 1, Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. Sounds like he's about to go under, but in verse 6, The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. I have a good future. Verse 7, I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me because he is my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, because of all of this, my heart is glad. No longer is his heart vexed, but his heart, his heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh will also rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol. Sheol is not hell. Sheol is the abode of of death. He's not going to just leave me in death. Nor will you allow your Holy One to seek corruption. That's a prophecy of Messiah. You will show me in the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so we've got Mary in the place of despair. So many times King David is at the the place of despair, but before them is God. This one consolation of Mary's pain is that she is exactly where she needs to be. 
not so much that she's before the cross of her son, but Mary is before the cross of her Savior. She recognized that back in Luke chapter 1 as she called out to God as being her, her Savior. And so we have this group of women, this group of women before the cross of Christ, these group of women who it really speaks volumes of what's going on. Again, we're looking at John. We've been had quite a few studies so far in, in chapter 19, but we're seeing these details and the importance of these details, how they related to those back then, but how they relate to us. Because if the Bible doesn't relate to us today in our situation now, why are we spending so much time? Why do we spend so much time in it? But it's the word of God that is applicable to all situations and circumstances in our lives. It's that which as we follow, then God blesses. As we forsake, then there's nothing but despair. Verse 26 through 27, when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own house, his own home. The point being made here is, even in the most heartbreaking of times, when you don't understand everything, when you feel as everything is falling apart, there is peace and comfort at the foot of the cross. And it's here that John comes to this understanding, the Apostle John. Now, the Lord knew that James wasn't going to be around. James wasn't around at this time anyway, but nonetheless, he's giving stewardship of his mother to his cousin. And John was going to be the one who was going to be responsible for her well-being. Now, this last person that we really need to see is the Apostle John. And the first thing you could ask is, why was he so bold? How come he didn't run when all the others ran? Well, the thing about John is, he did. He ran off just as everybody else did. The Bible's very clear. Matthew 26, 31, Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the sheep, I'm sorry, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. The thing about John is, he came back. And coming back makes all the difference. It's not that we are to live a perfect life. It's when those times when you fail, or maybe even those times when you walk away, that you come back. God promised the prophets, both Zechariah and Malachi, if you return to me, I'll return to you. And in the verbiage, the idea is, if you start over with me, I'll start over with you. And so we'll get there as we get to the end of the Gospel of John. There's Peter, and Peter's on the verge of despair. He did come back, the Lord had to go get him. But there's John, described here once again as the one whom Jesus loved. Now, when you write your own gospel, I guess you can describe yourself however it is that you want. But I really believe that, again, it's as John is there. He came back. And what is he seeing upon that cross? He's looking into the eyes of love. And you can't allow this to get past you. There's all the ugliness. There's all the, these earthquakes and this thundering and this darkness, but the only thing that he's seen is this personal connection that he has between his Savior. So much so that when John goes to describe him, the best way he can describe himself is, I'm the one whom the Lord loved. Now, it's not that the Lord loved him more than he loved anybody else, but John just, well, 
when you have that strong relationship with Christ, we can't physically look into the Lord's eyes as he did, but we can with the same power and for the same effect through the Holy Spirit, through the word of God, to be able to look into the eyes of the Lord and come to that same conclusion. John, you got it wrong. I'm the one whom the Lord loved. We don't say that in arrogance, but when you look into the eyes of Christ, it's just you and him. John, John came back. What is it that brought the apostle John back to Christ? Well, I I believe it's that which John wrote about in his gospel and in his epistles. In John chapter 6, verse 44, John quoted Jesus as saying, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up that last day. Nobody can come to me unless the Father in heaven draws him. And how are we drawn? Well, he goes on to describe it in John chapter 12, verse 32 through 33. Jesus said, If I am lifted up from the earth, will draw, I will draw all peoples to myself. This, he said, signifying by what death he would die. So the idea is Christ is raised upon the cross. He's going to draw all humanity to him. And the idea, all humanity has a decision to be made. But what's the drawing factor here? The drawing factor is, again, that logos of love. It's the love of God as he is dying upon the cross to all of humanity. It's the goodness of God that brings us to repentance. And this is the absolute goodness of God as Jesus is upon that cross. I would imagine John understanding the teachings and the scriptures is understanding what God is doing and, and he could not deny the Lord anymore. It was that love that drew him back to the cross. Now, theologians have debated, what does it mean to draw somebody? I heard somebody who had a disagreeing opinion to what I believe drawing means. He says, now, I I told him that I believe that drawing is kind of a, a, a wooing because God does draw all of humanity, but all humanity does have a decision. Well, he would say, if you go to a well... When you draw water up, you're not telling the water to come on up. The water doesn't have, a, doesn't have a choice. You dump the bucket in and you pull it back up with a rope. But that's not what that word means. That word means as all God is doing is he's displaying his love to all of humanity. And there is that attraction. There is that draw there. But unfortunately, there are those who resist it. Those who resist it and deny him to their own peril. As far as those who have received Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior, weren't you drawn to the Lord at some point? When you realized the sinner that you were, and you realized the despair that you were in, and then you realized the one who died for your sins and that great love with which he had for you, that truly, even though I was a sinner, even though I was lost, I'm the one whom the Lord loves. Later on in 1 John Chapter 4, verse 10, he says, In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation, the price paid to appease anger. In 1 John 4, 19, we love him because he first loved us. There was first that display of the love of Christ upon the cross. When we came to an understanding of that love, it's then that we developed a love for him. I've mentioned this before, but I can remember around the time when I was first saved, pastor at the time, was, was always speaking of how he loved Jesus Christ. 
And I didn't understand what that meant. I was saved, there's no doubt about that, but I, I was still learning. And, and I didn't understand what it means, meant to be in love with Jesus Christ. It's only when I, I grew in the knowledge of the Lord, when I was discipled, and when I learned and understood God's word, that I understood the magnitude of the sacrifice. And when you understand the magnitude of the sacrifice, then you also understand the vastness of the love that God has for you. And we love him because he first loved us. When you understand the degree to which he first loved you, it's when you develop and you come, maybe not develop, but when you come to an understanding of the love that you have for him as well. It's all about Jesus Christ upon the cross. So it's the love of God on the cross that draws John back to where he needs to be. And so John, John is, is there John is prepared. John, well, this experience affected him in such a way that we see the, the necessity of a love of God and the love that God has for us sprinkled throughout the rest of, well, really all of his epistles. In John 15, 12 through 13, this is my command that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. There's John, he saw Jesus Christ, this great love that Christ had for him, dying for his sins. What was it that would cause John to give of the rest of his life for Christ? Well, who was the beneficiary? Because he loved Christ, he was willing to love mankind, to see the gospel go throughout the world. If you truly have a love for Christ, you're going to have a love for others. It's that logos of the cross that I talk about. It's that vertical that you have to have first. If you look at a cross, it's the vertical, that love that we are to have with God, to love God with all of our being. But it's also the horizontal, that we are to love others as we love ourselves. The two are inseparable. And so that's how I gauge where I'm at with the Lord, where my love is for the Lord. Am I loving others as God has first loved me? And when I come to an understanding of these things, I come to a confidence in my Christian life. The person to whom God is Lord will have experienced his love and will express his love to others. And so we see this group of people at the foot of the cross, exactly where they need to be, but in them we see humanity expressed. I see myself expressed there at the foot of the cross. Do you see yourself there? You should see yourself there. If you don't, you need to ask why. Do I really understand what God was doing, what was being achieved upon the cross. To look into the eyes of love, if truly you do so, it's undeniable, it's undeniable, the love that God has for you, and if you're a born-again believer, that you are his child. Father, once again, we just thank you, God, that you have given us your word. And Father, it's your word that we understand what you did upon the cross. We understand the sacrifice and we understand, God, the goodness and, 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 the, and just the grace that you have, have lavished upon us all. And so, Father, as we look at these details, I pray, Father, that we would grasp on to them. I pray, Father, that we would make them personal just as the Apostle John did that we would leave this place understanding that I am the one whom you love. 
And so, Father, I just pray that these things would motivate us. I pray, Father, in the midst of all that we deal with at this, in this lifetime, that, God, your love would for always go before us. So we just thank you, Lord, and we just praise you that you would be glorified through our humble lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please? If there's anybody here that wants to play in the golf tournament, you've waited to the last minute. We have to have our numbers in by tomorrow. So if you are wanting to play, you need to get signed up tonight. Also, the couple study, they're going to be meeting a week from tomorrow. You can still be part of that. You can sign up for that. Uh, We have extra books and all. And so, again, if you want to just see what the Lord wants to do in your marriage or maybe the effect that you're able to have in somebody else's marriage, I encourage you to sign up for that. Sunday morning, we're going to be speaking on Dad's Day. Sunday evening, we're going to be taking off. There will be no service on Sunday evening. God bless you guys. Have a great rest of the week.